you want to put it up, Richard? Hooray! Good start. So uh, just to say that we will make every effort to record all of these um, messages and put them online as soon as we can. And Catherine is um, writing more questions for, for the small groups. Catherine's been part of the planning with myself and Phil, so she gets the, the picture behind what we're doing. Um, and we would really encourage you to be able to use, the, excuse me, use those in your group if you can. We should never try and suck a throat sweet whilst playing the flute. It's an interesting <laughs> combination. <laughs> so I want to start by reading to you, while still sucking the throat sweet, um, <laughs> Matthew chapter 24, because I think that we want a context for the book of Revelation that comes from Jesus as he was walking on the earth. And uh, really, uh, as I read this this morning, I thought to myself, this pretty much sums up everything we're going to be doing in these next months ahead. So Matthew tw chapter 24 um, and verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. If you are a Christian in Syria today, I would imagine you think that's a piece of descriptive writing rather than words foretelling the future. Our world today is unsettled at best. There is terror around us almost every day. And whilst it's reported when it's a shooting at Fort Lauderdale Airport, and less so when it's a bomb in the border town in Syria or a shooting in Iraq, nonetheless there is terror and violence all around us. There are wars and rumours of wars. There is persecution in many different guises. We are familiar with those who are tortured and imprisoned and beaten for their faith. But what is it like to be a Christian in the US today when your about-to-be president says that he's a Christian with one particular slant on things and then there are other Christians with a completely different slant? What does it feel like there? What is happening to the church in the United States in the midst of all this? Is that not just a different kind of persecution? And we have challenge upon challenge to our discipleship, to our walking with Jesus in many different ways at the moment. It seems, doesn't it, that God is shaking the nations. I prefer to think that God is shaking them than someone else's anyway. God is shaking the nations. And when that happens, where do we look? Because we are very tempted to look to our media, 
to social networks, to our friends around us. There's nothing particularly the matter with those things. But where do we look that gives us a better view? A better view than us pooling ignorance and misinformation and sometimes information. Where do we look? And it seems to me that in those times, we need to look here to the Scriptures And through them, we need to look to Jesus because that's the only place where we're going to get good perspective and something helpful to us at this point. We planned to study Revelation many months ago, back in some point in the summer, and it's felt like a gestation period. And now I'm like properly excited because we're about to give birth. Hopefully it won't be as messy. (laughs) As every month has gone on, it has seemed more relevant and more necessary that we take this book and we study it and we get to grips with it and we hear what God is saying to us through it. So how do we do that? Because I know that for many people, Revelation seems somewhat impenetrable. So how do we do that? And we are going to do the whole thing. None of this wimping out at chapter (laughs) 7. We are going to do the whole thing. Some of it will be in chunks, but we are going to do the whole thing. Well, I want this morning to give a long introduction so that helps us to go forward into these next weeks. I want to give you some pictures about how you might think, how we might think together about Revelation as we go forward. By the way, it's not an accident that we've chosen this particular graphic to help us over these next months ahead. This is our kitchen. Somebody cover Mike's eyes, please. Probably doesn't want to think about it anymore. Um, October 2016, this wasn't the worst state of demolition. It was the last photograph I could bear to take. That wall where the door is there, that got knocked down. The one that's over here, kind of where we're standing right now, that's got knocked down. There was rubble upon rubble upon rubble. They dug down nearly two meters into the floor. It was a complete mess. It was complete chaos. There was loud noise all of the time. There were builders in all the time. One time I was up in the attic, I had this bad noise, ran down the stairs, put my head around and went, are you all right? Went, yeah, the ladder just collapsed. I was like, (laughs) thinking it was maybe a wall that wasn't supposed to have collapsed. In between times, we have a Victorian terrace house. So you go in the front, in the hall, front room, through the door, kitchen. Big bit of um, plastic sealed up between the hall and the kitchen. So we kind of lived in the front half of the house. In fact, I was saying to Mike, um, are you going next door? Which meant, are you going out the front door all the way around and in the back door? For many weeks, that has been the case. And as the work progressed, and all the noise and the banging and the dust and the demolition, some of the gaffer tape peeled off the screen, the plastic screen, and you you could just see around. And, uh, and you just got a glimpse of the kitchen through the plastic curtain. Now, I want to tell you that that was not a good idea. <laughs> because what you could see on the other side did not fill your heart with joy and hope. And sometimes when we glimpse through the curtain to what is behind it, what we see is more scary than hopeful, isn't it? The vision of what is, is gone. And what we see in front of us is really scary. 
The work's in progress, apparently, according to the builders, but the devastation is greater than the restoration. And as we look at some of these chapters in Revelation, that's exactly what we're going to feel like. All we're going to hear about, particularly end of February, beginning of March, if you want to plan your holiday, is, um, is devastation, is warfare, is destruction, is all that kind of stuff that is also essential for the vision of what is to come. And somewhere in there, we have to hold on to that vision, just as we have had to hold on to that vision and still are holding on to the vision, though we do have something that looks like a kitchen and we did spend seven hours decorating it yesterday and now I can hardly move. The best thing about Revelation is that the new Jerusalem comes down to earth fully decorated, finished. But in the meantime, when we just glimpse through the curtain, it might not all look great. Some of it might look more like our kitchen has. So here's another picture. About a month ago, uh, Mike took me to New York for my birthday, which was really lovely. And uh, one of the things that he really wanted to do is to go up the One World Trade Center. I'm glad that he really did, because it would have never occurred to me, and it was fantastic. So we went up the One World Trade Center, which is obviously built on the site of the Twin Towers, um, amidst all the original devastation there, and is a symbol of hope amidst that violent devastation. Um, it's a symbol of renewal and restoration in the face of destruction, and it really is. They're still building all around it. Prosperity and more businesses come into that district of New York. There really is a sense of hope there with what they have built. So we, uh, we went uh, up the tower, 102 floors, really high, very fast. Um, and when we got to the top, it was amazing. And I won't spoil it for you, for those of you that might yet go. It was amazing. And they have a vision statement, because everyone has to have a vision statement these days, don't they? And their vision statement is this, see forever. See forever. And it just captured my imagination. See forever. And at the top of that tower, you can have a 360-degree view of the whole of New York and into four states beyond. It's as if you can see forever. See, just to prove we were there. <laughs> now, we were really lucky with the weather. But a few days before, the guy who was up there talking said, oh, it had been really foggy. So people had booked their tickets, so they went up. And they looked out the window and, well, nothing. Just fog. No perspective, no vision, no seeing forever. Because fog obliterates or at best confuses what we perceive, doesn't it? And clarity brings confidence to us. And it's all a matter of perspective. And what we have now in our world is lots of fog. Lots of swirling mists. Lots of confusion. Lots of uncertainty. Lots of views and, and a lack of Ability, really, most of the time to discern what is true and what is not, or what is partially so. And what we need is clarity. What we need is a perspective of God and his word in order to see clearly and to see forever. Not just to see directly in front of you, but to see forever. Or another picture. I quite like art, and I particularly like impressionist art. Um, and uh, one of the artists of that period, maybe slightly later, is Surah, who did that pointillism, you know where you get all the dots? 
It's not like join the dots. I mean, the dots make a picture. And my brother had a big picture. I think it's called something like Banya Surmetsalak or something. Anyway, it's bathers by the lake um, on his wall. And that was all made up of these little dots. But I actually prefer Monet and had the privilege of going to the Royal Academy a number of years ago to see the Monet exhibition. And it was wonderful to see all the paintings of the same thing in different lights from different perspectives. All those little strokes making up these amazing pictures. And about 25 years ago, I went to Paris and went to the Orangerie to see Monet's water lilies paintings there. And I think in my mind, they'd always been the same side of a postcard, because that's how you always see them, isn't it? Well, they're really, really not. They're, they're this sort of size. And there's about eight of them there. And they put the seating in the middle because that's where you need to see them from. You need to be able to stand back to really see what is there. If you get too close to Impressionist art, all you see are the little brush strokes or the dots. If you take a step back or several steps back and you see the whole thing, you get the full grandeur of the painting. It is not necessary to focus on every single brush stroke. Every brush stroke is vital to the whole picture. But not every brushstroke is equally important to look at in detail. Some of them are there to cast light onto another bit of the painting, to highlight different bits of it, to create depth and perspective. That's what Revelation is like. We don't need to go through this. I mean, we're going till nearly Easter, guys, which is a long series for us, isn't it? But if we went through it verse by verse, brushstroke by brushstroke, well, some of us might not even see the end. That's how long it would take. We don't need to do that. We need to stand back and see the whole. So here's a quote that says some of that. This book is like a huge painting of the end times. Move up too close to examine each brushstroke and the grandeur of the painting disappears. It must be viewed in its entirety because it communicates the great truths of the close of redemptive history. It requires perspective. An obsession with the quality of the canvas or the exact shade of the paint in a particular corner makes it impossible to grasp the artist's large vision. Revelation is not for the prosaic who would expend their energies arguing trivia. It is for those who wish to experience the wonder of God's sovereign control over the course of man's history. So we're not going to talk Certainly not a lot about millennialism or pre-millennial and all that stuff because I can't even say those words. We're going to focus on the big picture, the big picture of what God is wanting to say to us. Many people think Revelation is some kind of complex riddle, that it's too difficult. That's why we don't read it. It's too difficult. It's like a complex riddle. But the word revelation means reveal, you know, uncover make clear. So it's not designed to be complex, it's designed to help us to understand. Often people see it as a scary book, but actually it's intended to bring peace and hope in times of persecution when it was first written. It is often seen as a book that triggers fear, but it's meant to be a book of blessing. Did you notice that bit? Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Well done, Tim, you're doing ahead of the game now. And blessed are those who hear it, that's us, and take it to heart. Ah, that's the bit you're responsible for, by the way. Blessed. 
It's good, isn't it, to be blessed at the, new, the beginning of a new year? He said, if we do this, we'll be blessed. It reminded me of when I walked the Camino de Santiago. And lots of people said, why are you doing this? And I had a few answers, but fundamentally it was, I don't really know. But when I was reading one of the Psalms, Psalm 84, and verse 5, it says this, Blessed are those who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. I thought sometimes you don't need to know because there's a blessing in doing the thing that honors God. He says, blessed are those who hear and take to heart these words. So we're going to pull back the curtain. And sometimes it'll be a little bit and sometimes it might be a big swathe of curtain. So this is a series of pictures of visions. Maybe you even want to think of them as comics because if you were to paint this, it would probably look more like a comic strip that enable us to view our obvious reality. That's the reality that's in front of your face. Uncertainty, war, violence across the globe, your own personal stuff that you might be dealing with. From God's heavenly perspective, which is actual reality. Now that really messes with our heads, doesn't it? That the obvious reality is not necessarily the actual reality. So you can go away and think about that. As we glimpse behind the curtain, we see the real reality of the spiritual realm that makes sense of our temporal reality. You can think about that as well. And surely this is a book for our time, is it not? Okay, you're about as enthusiastic as a 915. <laughs> really? We want to hear God in our time? Surely this is booked for our time, isn't it? Okay, three of you are enthusiastic now. You need to work harder on this next week, Phil. <laughs> the other thing that's really important, Revelation is not primarily about the future, which has been where it's just sat on a bookshelf gathering dust, because, well, that's about the future. It helps us to understand the present. It helps us to live more effectively as followers of Jesus, whatever we experience in our lives. So... Where in the world are we talking about? Well, this is a, a map of the world uh, in the time of John. Um, Patmos is off the southwest corner of what we know as Turkey. And the seven churches are the ones with the stars there. So in the following couple of weeks, we're going to be focusing a little bit more on those. But this is an actual place with a letter written to actual places. It's kind of always worth saying that. The context is this. It was written down by John. Now, I'm happy to, and I hope you are, yeah, happy to think that this is John, the apostle, son of Zebedee, writer of John's gospel and the letters, helpfully named 1, 2, and 3 John, who was being held in exile on the island of Patmos. Some people have a different view. We're going to have that view. LAUGHTER it's written to the first century churches, all now in modern Turkey. I think that also makes it, again, a book for our time with what is going on in Turkey at this point. And it's written at the time of the Emperor Domitian, approximately AD 95, which was a time of increasing persecution as Christians were required to bow their knees and proclaim that Caesar was Lord. So that's its context. What kind of a book is it? It's really important to know what kind of literature you're reading. If you're reading a recipe, you interpret it in a certain way. If you're reading a computer textbook, you interpret it in a certain way. We need to kind of have a grasp of what it is that we're reading here. So what is Revelation? Well, it's a number of things. 
First of all, it's a pastoral letter. I do think that's important, um, that John was a pastor. John cared for people. John was involved with these seven churches. He may even have started some of them. He was a pastor. He had a pastor's heart for the churches and for the believers who were suffering at that time. Let me read to you, there's a few quotes this week and there'll be less after that, I guess. Something that talks about that, that I think really speaks to us. Wright says this, it's routine among us to assume that the beginning was good. It is agreed among us that the conclusion will be good. That would seem to guarantee that everything between the good beginning and the good ending will also be good. But it doesn't turn out that way. Or at least it doesn't in the ways we expect. That always comes as a a surprise. We expect uninterrupted goodness, and it is interrupted. I'm rejected by a parent, coerced by a government, divorced by a spouse, discriminated against by a society, injured by another's carelessness. All of this in a life which at its creation was very good and at its conclusion will be completed according to God's design. Between the believed but unremembered beginning and the hoped for but unimaginable ending, there are disappointments, contradictions, not to be explained absurdities, bewildering paradoxes, each of them a reversal of expectation. That is our reality, isn't it? When God made everything, it was very good. And it says at the end of the story, April, that it will be very good. But in the middle... And John is a pastor who walks with people through the interruptions of the goodness of their journey, through the failures and the hurts and the disappointments and the complexities and riddles of our lives. He is a pastor and this is a pastoral letter. But it's also prophetic poetry. Prophetic poetry. When we read a poem, we do not have more information. We have more experience. So as we read it, we need to kind of immerse ourselves in it, enjoy it, let it speak to us, because it's a poem. I like this too, so you're going to get this. John is a poet, using words to intensify our relationship with God. He is not trying to get us to think more accurately, well that's a relief, or to train us into better behavior, but to get us to believe more recklessly, behave more playfully, the faith, recklessness, and hope, playfulness of children entering into the kingdom of God. Are you ready for this? He will jar us out of our lethargy, get us to live on the alert, to open our eyes to the burning bush and fiery chariots, open our ears to the hard steel promises and commands of Christ, banish boredom from the gospel, lift up our heads, enlarge our hearts. Fancy a bit of that? Sounds good, doesn't it? And of course, it's also this apocalyptic insight. It uncovers secrets. It does have that weird stuff in it. The weird symbolism, the horror of Babylon and the horsemen of the apocalypse and all that stuff which we're going to have fun with later on in the series. It does have all that. But here we are, we have 404 verses in Revelation with 518 references to earlier scripture none of which are direct quotations. John is immersed in the scriptures, in the 65 books that come before Revelation, and out of that comes this vision and this writing and this speaking. 
His favorites are Ezekiel, Daniel, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Isaiah, and Exodus. If you want to read those in advance, with allusions to many other things. We have to understand Revelation in the canonical context, not just try and take it on its own and make sense of it. It doesn't make sense. It relates all the way back to the rest of scriptures. The main thrust of this book, says Andrew Wilson, is not to predict what will happen in the future, at least not until the end. It is to show disciples what is really happening in the present. It is a series of visions and metaphors designed to pull back the curtain and show the readers who are originally suffering Christians the sovereignty of God through history, even when evil looks to be prevailing. It is designed to change people's views, give a heavenly perspective on earthly events, and reveal the one who is in charge of it all. That is why John calls it the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God drew back the curtain. God opened heaven. And when we were doing the Lord's Prayer, you'll remember that their concept of heaven for Jews wasn't quite the same as it is for us, that there were more than one, one heaven. There were heavens. There was the close heaven to you, the air that you breathe. There was the heaven that's the sky where the birds fly about in. And there was the beyond, the spiritual reality. And God opens that heaven but they also didn't have such a strong sense of heaven and earth that the two things melded and melted and merged together much more often, particularly in the temple and, of course, in the person of Jesus Christ. God opens heaven and he asks John to write down and record everything that happens. Now, this is not dictating a book. This is a multi-sensory experience a 360-degree, multi-sensory experience. And as we read Revelation, we need to get that. That it's what he sees, but it's also what he hears. It's what he tastes and what he touches and what he smells. It's the whole thing. And if we just have it on a two-dimensional level, we'll miss so much. He has this multi-sensory experience of the opening of heaven. So the chapter we're looking at, briefly. The revelation of Jesus Christ the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Given as God sent his angel to his servant John, John is a witness to everything he saw. He says this is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. If that doesn't make you want to read something, nothing will. This is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Greetings from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace. And then he starts with this amazing blessing. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And Phil picked up on that earlier on. To get us to hear that, the revelation again of the one who revealed himself as I am. Whose name is I am, who was and is and is to come. And then this slightly odd phrase from the seven spirits before his throne. But I thought there was just one spirit. There's some discussion around this. Is it a sevenfold ministry of the Spirit? Or is it something around the Spirit with reference to the seven churches? And then there's that word seven that comes in many times, which is a symbol of completeness and perfection. Don't stress about it too much. And from Jesus Christ. Now listen, there's a couple of verses here. And this is what they say about Jesus. 
We've not got anywhere in this book yet. But this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Faithful witness. Just think of yourself as a persecuted follower of Jesus reading these words. Faithful witness. Firstborn from among the dead. There will be others. Your friends, people in your family. Ruler of the kings of the earth. Domitian, Diocletian, Nero, Hitler, Stalin, and on and on. Ruler of the kings of the earth. Loves us. Loves me. Freed us from our sins by his blood. Made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. Is worthy of glory and power. Is coming back again. Amen is good at that point. Daniel 7 verse 13, Zechariah 12 verse 10. He's coming back again. And on that day, every eye will see him. And even those who pierced him will know who he is. Everyone will bow the knee and speak with their voice that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is how it's going to be. Thank you. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The first and the last. I am every letter in the alphabet. I am the one who preceded everything and brought it to being. I am the one who will bring it to completion. Alpha, 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 and... Eugene Peterson asked this question, and it's the way that we're going to look at this book together over these next weeks ahead. He asked the question, it's not so much what does it mean, but how does this work in the community of believers? Of course, what it means is important. We're not going to just ask, what does it mean? Because this is a working manual. How does it work? How does it work for us as a community of followers of Jesus? How does it work beyond us? How does it work? Because Revelation is a book for all who feel that they're down and out. All that have no voice. All who suffer at the hands of the powerful. And is that not all of us at some level? Are marginalized or misunderstood? Are lonely, scared, persecuted and lost? Or who recognize their need? I think that kind of covers everyone. And this is a book that's immediately relevant to us. Not to be put on the shelf. It's not to go, oh, that was interesting. Please don't say that was interesting. It's not for over there. It's for now. All of this applies to now. And I know that some of you have been, oh, great. <laughs> some of you looked slightly more dubious, like you've already done one Corinthians, can't you give us a break? <laughs> and I was reading Tom Wright, Bishop Tom Wright's commentary introduction, and he says this, and I felt that it maybe would resonate with some of you here this morning. It says, many people find themselves tiptoeing around Revelation with a sense that they don't really belong there, but they do. So if that's you thinking, oh, I don't know, I don't know about this. I don't know if I'm clever enough for this. I don't know if I've got a grasp of the other 65 books enough for this. Then, uh, then jettison that thought, will you? Because you belong here. This is for you. This was written to young Christians, early Christians. 
Anyway, this book, in fact, offers one of the clearest and sharpest visions of God's ultimate purpose for the whole creation and of the way in which the powerful forces of evil at work in a thousand ways, but not least in the idolatrous and tyrannous political systems, can be and are being overthrown through the victory of Jesus the Messiah and the consequent costly victory of his followers. The world we live in today is no less complex and dangerous than the world of the late first century when this book was written, and we owe it to ourselves to get our heads and hearts around John's glorious pictures as we attempt to be faithful witnesses to God's love in a world of violence, hatred, and suspicion. So here it is, revelation for everyone, everyone. So are you ready? Make sure you bring your seatbelts to church each week. Are you ready? Because we want you to prepare yourselves. We want you to prepare yourself to be filled with awe in worship. This book takes us into the very heart of heaven, to the very presence of the Lamb upon the throne, and to the worship of all the angelic beings and all those who have ever known and loved Jesus. And that is going to be the place that you are going to spend eternity. So a small amount of excitement would be good. Let God turn around what you feel and think about worship. Let him captivate you. Let him get some awe and wonder back in your heart again. You ready for that? Are you ready to be motivated in giving yourself afresh to Jesus? Oh, yes, even if that sacrifice requires suffering. For many people around the globe today, that choice might end in death. So to give up something, to let go of something, to change something, to sort a relationship out, to what's God going to call us to? Not just as individuals, as a church. And are you ready to become a more courageous and devoted follower of Jesus? Because it's only ever about that. If you get a better understanding at the end of it and you feel less scared, great. But actually, this is about becoming a more courageous and devoted follower of Jesus. You know how we've been banging on about discipleship for quite a lot of months now? Well, this is about that as well. <laughs> 